Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals, BetterHelp is here for you. It can offer a crucial assist. These are licensed professional counselors. Get connected in under 24 hours. Talk in a safe online environment. Change counselors for free if necessary. This is a convenient, confidential, professional, affordable service. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. And best of all, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other PPL. All right? Okay. Hey, everybody. What's going on? This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have Raphael Bob Waxberg on the program today. Raphael Bob Waxberg is the creator of BoJack Horseman, the much-beloved and critically acclaimed animated series on Netflix. He is also now the author of an acclaimed story collection called Someone Who Will Love You in All of Your Damaged Glory, or In All Your Damaged Glory, available now from Knopf. Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory, a story collection from Raphael Bob Waxberg, the creator of BoJack Horseman. That conversation is coming up in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, helping you reimagine your book club. There's never been a better time for audiobooks. Stay on top of your book club reading by listening. You can multitask while you do it, cooking, cleaning, walking, shopping, or even just relaxing. Discover a variety of incredible new titles from Penguin Random House Audio. Listen to The Nickel Boys, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel from Colson Whitehead, or how about uh, Friends and Strangers from J. Courtney Sullivan. These titles are available wherever audiobooks are sold. Available now from Penguin Random House Audio. Get listening. 
So it was uh, great to meet, uh, you know, Raphael Bob Waxberg. I always like having hyphenates on this show, people who do different things. And he is having success in television. He's having success in literature now, and I think has a unique perspective on all of the above. So let's get to the conversation. This is Raphael Bob Waxberg, and his new story collection available now from Knopf is called Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. Yeah, this book was a long time coming, um, although it, it didn't quite come together until the very end. Um, it's not like I had, you know, a full book of stories just sitting in a drawer waiting to be published. Um, but I had a, a, a small drawer of stories. I had, uh, you know, various odds and ends that I was working on, you know, yeah, from before I was ever a TV writer, even an aspiring TV writer. Um, I knew that I wanted to write and I had ideas for things and I didn't quite know where to put them. Um, so I had a blog that I would like post little, little things on. Um, and then I had longer stories that I wrote that I didn't post anywhere cause they, they felt too long for my blog. Um, but too short for, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't know what to do with story. I guess now I'd be like, Oh, I could have submitted them to some places or some literary journals or magazines, but I didn't think of that. So I just, I wrote things and then kind of sat on them for a while. And then, um, you know, when when Bojack came out or, or when it you know started to to become a successful show, uh, suddenly people were interested in, in, you know, do you have other things that you're interested in writing? Um, and uh, I said, well, I, I would love to to finish this book of short stories. Um, and so uh, I made a deal uh, with Knopf and uh, I wrote the rest of the book. Um, so. Yeah, over the the course of the book, you know, takes you on a, a a real journey. I'd say over the past ten years of my life, maybe a little bit more, maybe twelve years of just some stories are are from a while ago, and some are are much more recent. And uh, I I enjoy that aspect personally because I I like seeing the um the 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 growth that I've gone through as a writer and as a person. I feel like you can you can feel a lot of the um emotional uh, checkpoints and experiences that I've been through since I first started writing these stories in the stories themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, sometimes I can feel that same way while I'm looking at my writing and I'm like, wow, look at who I used to be. Other times I can be like, ooh, look at who I used to be. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't know if that's interesting for readers who aren't me, but for me, it's quite interesting as a document. But you know, do you ever, do you ever like find yourself reading maybe like a story that's on the older side? And and feeling a little bit bewildered, like wow, is this really is this really who I was and where I was? Oh, all the time. I mean, I, I there's definitely there's stuff that I didn't put in the book because I remember the time being like this is really cool, and then looking at it again in the context of this book, you know, seven eight years later, and being like, oh, this is nothing. This is either uh, just not interesting, or it's like really gross and offensive, or it just doesn't. It's not saying what I think it what I thought it was saying at the time, or making the point that I I thought it was making. Um, you know, I think that's, but then the other is, is also true that sometimes I read something old that I've completely forgotten about and I go, Oh, this, this kid was kind of smart. This is, this is a cool, <laughs> this is a cool thing that this guy wrote who I guess was me. So what about, uh, fitting this in? Like, when did you write these? Have you got so much, you've got so much going on. Like, how did you find time to also write short stories? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, there was one year that was just an incredibly 
Um, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I even looking back, I'm kind of mixed on it because it was both incredibly stressful and I think unsustainable, but also incredibly productive. And I got a lot done uh, where I, I was producing three TV shows at once and also trying to finish my short story collection. And then, you know, luckily, because the th- three TV shows I was making were all for the same company, I was able to to work into my contract that I needed um, two weeks off vacation um, but you know, uh, where I wasn't working on any of the shows because otherwise they would all overlap and I would like, you know, finish one season, but then I'm still working on one of the other seasons. And then that season ends, I'm still working on the other two seasons or the other one comes back. And so I was having no time off. So like I need, I need two weeks off that are, that are just for me. Um, so I got those two weeks off in the summer and then instead of taking a vacation, I spent those two weeks finishing my book, which was also way past deadline. Um, so there was like a, a, maybe a year and a half to two years where I really was just working nonstop, you know, whether on the shows or on the book, you know, through holidays. Um, it really wasn't pleasant. And I, I, I don't want to repeat that. But at the same time, I'm, I am really proud of the work that I did in that time and, and what I have to show for it. Um, so I, I don't I don't know what that says. I would I would like to think it's not necessary. I would like to think that I can I can create work I'm proud of without you know working myself to the bone. But we'll see. Well, I feel like sometimes you get more done when you have more to do. You know, like I always go, I always go back to my college years and like how I got my best grades in the semesters when I took the most classes. Really? Yeah, but in the semesters where I had like two classes, you know how you kind of do that towards the end. You yeah, sort of. Yeah. I feel like I was more of a more of a fuck up when I had less to do somehow. I think that's. Probably true. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. And so I, I I think the challenge is, is there a way to keep yourself busy without abusing yourself and and, and create something, a process that is sustainable for you that feels productive while also not, you know, running out of gas because that's dangerous. Um, and, you know, you also need to be there for your family and your friends and your your your, your other non-work things. And that is that, that balance is something that I struggle with. And I think right now, you know, that we're in this um, weird uh, societal pause, um, I, I, I found that in some ways to be very beneficial as like a hard reset. And I, I think in some ways I needed the kind of forced stoppage and, and the slowdown, um, but also yeah, like you said, I, I've definitely not been as productive as maybe I thought I, I would have been given the extra free time that I now have. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people probably are feeling that way about it, you know, that it's an opportunity to like recharge batteries, but also reassess priorities. And I think in particular for people who are super busy or who are prone to, you know, just getting involved in a lot of different projects at once or have like a uh, a tendency towards workaholism. Like I think maybe a lot of people have used this or have been forced to use this as an opportunity to reevaluate. Yeah. I, and I hope, I hope I am able to take some lessons from this that I, I, I take with me in the future. And I, I hope that as things start back up again, as hopefully they will, I, I don't, you know, re- revert back to the, the 24 hour work schedule. Is that, what, I, that, is, that, that I, is that where you were? Is that what you were doing? In some ways. I mean, I, I, I think that is, somewhat natural for for most writers to feel like you're always on the clock um you know especially if you have looming deadlines if you have things hanging over your head it starts to feel like 
anything you're doing that isn't working on those things is an indulgence and is a, a, a poor use of your time. And I, I think that kind of thinking isn't healthy or productive because I think then what ends up happening is you do nothing is you sit in front of your computer screen and you don't do the work that you want to be doing, but you also don't do other stuff. And I think if you can find a way to set work hours for yourself and, and allow yourself to be off the clock, even if you are maybe behind or, you know, even if you do feel like you need to catch up, um, I, I think you can have a, a healthier life and maybe even better work. If, if you pressure yourself to work within the hours that are set for work and say, you know, I might be struck with an idea late at night, but then I can just make a note of it. I don't need to, 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 to get into it because that's not my work time. I don't know. That's something I'm, I'm experimenting with and, and, and thinking about in the future, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, I struggle, uh, I struggle with like, you know, how you, you sort of work on a creative project during the day or whenever you do. Mm-hmm. And then you hit the, you hit the wall at a certain point, you just kind of run out of juice. And at some point you have to kind of throw in the towel for the day and say, I, I can't do anymore. Like, it's not productive to keep looking at this because I'm, I'm spent. What I struggle with is like waiting for the next day <laughs> when like my energies have restored themselves to some extent. You know what I'm saying? It's it's like that downtime can be difficult for me. Like I wish that I could always be going, but you have to sort of yeah, you know, you have to discipline yourself and allow yourself or find ways to be otherwise productive in that time. Like maybe the dishes need to be done or or you know, maybe uh go for a walk, you know, take, like I have a dog, which has been amazing for me as far as going for walks and kind of clearing my head. And, and you, yeah, like you said, you need that regenerative time, that restorative time and that have faith that like ideas will come to you. And if, if you are, um, you know, somewhat of a, of a, of a workaholic or feel guilt around not working, I mean, you can reframe that as like, that is work too. Like that is, that is productive is to, to give yourself, give your brain a break to, to read something and get inspired or watch something and get inspired or work on a puzzle and let your brain kind of work through some stuff without you like actively writing. Like all that stuff is helpful and useful in your writing. And I think most of us know this, but we still have this kind of nagging guilt or this feeling of like, we're not, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're not writing. But I think the act of writing is not just the physical act of sitting at a keyboard writing. I, th- I think it's so much more than that. So if we, if we can retrain our brains to feel productive and, and working on our craft when we're not physically working on our craft, I think that can be good. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So I, I want to ask you, like, just like some basic biographical stuff. Like, where are you from? Like, where, where do you originate from? Um, I'm from Palo Alto, California, is where I, where I grew up. Um, I guess actually, originally, I was born in, 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 in the, the first six years of my life in San Francisco. Um, but then, then my family moved to, to Palo Alto, uh, where I, I, I grew up the rest of my childhood. Um, then I, I went across the country to Bard College in New York, um, which I think was was good for me. I, I think it was nice to kind of get away from California and and um, experience a different kind of place and a different kind of energy. Um, and then uh, after that, I, I moved down to New York City and I lived in New York City for for three years and I. Um, was doing doing comedy there. I was in a, a a comedy group called Old English, and we did we put on a monthly live show and and made videos on the internet. Um, and and I wasn't very happy in New York. Um, and why, I don't know why not. Is, well, I you know this is something that I, I go back and forth on a lot. I think some people they get to New York City and they go, oh my god, I'm home. You know, <laughs> like oh this this is where I was always meant to be. And I, I never felt that way. Uh, I think in some ways I'm a, I'm a California boy at heart. Um, I live in, in uh, Southern California now. And I think when I, when I moved back to California after living in New York for three years and, and before that uh, college in upstate New York for, for four years, I, there was a certain uh, feeling of like, oh, this is more my speed. This makes sense to me. Um, but at the same time, I think also it's just I got a little older. You know, I, I think being in your late 20s is a little easier than being in your early 20s. You feel a little more settled in who you are. So I, I'm, I'm not always sure if I can attribute it to my physical location. It's just my own comfort in my skin and my own kind of um, confidence in, in what I was doing and, and how I was approaching my career and my life. Um, but but I think there there is a – for me, looking back at my timeline – it, it does feel like something clicked when I when I moved to L.A. That that in New York I felt a little uh, pulled in all directions, which also feels very New York. There's like always a billion things to do, and I I didn't know do I want to be a TV writer? Do I want to write these short stories? Uh, do I want to be a playwright? I, I I went to school for playwriting. Um, do I want to be an actor? And then once I got to L.A. and kind of decided, oh let me let me just focus on being a TV writer first. I can always kind of loop back to some of these other things, but let me let me try to go down that path specifically. You know that that gave me some direction, um, and I, I I feel like um, that was helpful for me. But I, again, I don't know if that was just if that was actually the physical location or just kind of the the mental kind of moves that I had to make and would have happened no matter where I was. So in terms of coming to LA and deciding to be a TV writer, I know there are probably people listening who are like, yeah, how do you do that? Yeah. How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's a, a frustrating answer because it is, it is different for everybody. You know, everyone has, has their own ways in. I mean, one thing that I, um, uh, that was helpful for me was to worry less about my career and worry more about my craft, which is a luxury. I mean, not, not everyone can, can do that. Um, 
but I, I got very lucky right out of college. My comedy group uh, got this deal with um, Turner, had this website, Super Deluxe, and they were giving out money to to comedy creators. Um, and And we got like a really good deal from them. And so I actually had a little bit of money for a while, which allowed me to to not get a day job and just work on scripts, both with my comedy group and and on my own and and develop my own voice. And and then I felt, you know, when, when doors started opening for me, it was not because I'd gone to the right mixers uh, or, you know, cold emailed the right people or made the right connections. It was because my scripts and and my work was was good enough that people were seeking me out, um, and that is a very a, a a privileged position to be in because again I I had the luxury to get that good and I had um, you know I had a bit of savings coming out from college that that gave me a little bit of a cushion there and not not everybody is so lucky so in some ways it's a bit elitist to say don't worry about it just just focus on your work. Um, and I know not everybody has that luxury, but I, I, I do think that is important. And I, I, I see, I know a lot of people who came to this town who did have the right attitude as far as making connections and knew how to get the jobs and knew how to network. And then when people were ready to look at their scripts, they didn't have, uh, a script to show them because they'd spent all their energy, you know, trying to be in the right rooms and so I, I think more important is is to really write stuff, think about your voice, hone your craft, share it with people, find a peer group, get people to um, give you notes, feel out what's working, what's not working, make stuff. I mean, it's never been there's never been a, a lower barrier for entry for just making stuff. I mean, people you can do it on your phone, um, make stuff, put it out there see what resonates with people. And also I think making stuff makes your writing better by seeing like what, what actors trip over, you know, what, what lines actors trip over, what feels natural, what made sense in your head. But then when you see it, you realize, Oh, the scene is way too long. Um, so, I mean, my, my main advice is, is write stuff and make the stuff. If you're interested in, in writing stuff that gets made, if you were interested in writing just prose fiction, then write it. Um, and, and try to put yourself in the position where people will see it. Uh, but you can't do that unless you're, you're writing it. Do you like the, I mean, I hear what you're saying and I think there's a lot of, uh, truth in it. I think that, you know, obviously you have to be, uh, making work and it has to be good. You have to be doing that work. Otherwise there's nothing to talk about, but I also can feel like having dipped my toe in these waters a little bit, that there is something of a social achievement, uh, it can feel like a social achievement sometimes or, or that that part of it is maybe it weighs too much to me sometimes, you know, like, holy cow, all these meetings, the pitch meetings, the general yeah. meetings, the talking, the having to be on the, you know, having people tell you how much they love you and they don't mean a word of it really. You know, like, Well, or, that's, that's, I, I think that's, you know, specifically in, in TV and, and this hasn't been my experience as much in, in, you know, in, in, I mean, I still kind of feel like I'm dipping my toes into the book world, although now I've written a book, which is out in paperback. So I, I guess I can call myself an author, yeah. uh, but I still feel like I'm a, I'm a guest in this world. And, but that, that, and I was gonna say that feels like less the case, but here I am chatting with you and schmoozing with you and, 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 and talking to people and trying to get people to, to read my stuff. And so I think a, a talent that is important for a writer 
is a talent for talking to people and, and being charismatic and finding ways to talk about your own work that is engaging and, and, and allows your work to be approachable to people and, and being a bit of a salesperson. And that I think is frustrating for a lot of people who don't want to do that because it's, it's, that is so unrelated to in some ways the, the craft of writing and the, and the art of writing. And I think a lot of authors, but also TV writers are like, why does that have to be part of it? Like, why do I have to go into a room and, and meet people and be charming? That's not why I got into this. And I think, yeah, but like every job has stuff you don't want to do. Like no, no job is just the fun stuff. So I, I think it's important that we recognize that, yeah, if you want to be a writer, you know, maybe take an improv class or, you know, read how to uh, win friends and influence people or, or, or any, you know, if that is something you struggle with, um, what, what are ways that you can become more outgoing when, even when the whole reason you became a writer in the first place is because you're an introvert and you don't want to talk to people. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, like, you know, having worked in a comedy group and done that in college and out of college and, um, you know, written and performed and all that kind of stuff. Did that help you when it came time to go out and pitch BoJack? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I'd say, you know, one of the things that really helped me is, is right when I got to LA, another thing I got into was, um, story, storytelling, which I, I feel like there was a big movement and it seems like le less of a thing now, but I think, you know, obviously the, the biggest example is the moth. Um, but there were lots of other storytelling shows all over LA and I assume in other big cities around the country, um, or, you know, around like 2010 to 2015, let's say. Um, and I started doing that a little bit and, and, and going to shows and, and, and telling stories. And I really got comfortable with that form. Um, and e even, even such that like before that, when I was in college, I, I had done stand up a little bit and I never, I didn't really stick with it. Like, especially when I moved to New York city, I did one open mic and I was like, Nope, I, I hate this. I don't, I don't have the. I, I respect the hell out of people who can do this. I can't do this. This is miserable. And then when I started doing uh, storytelling, I realized like, oh, that's that's really what I was doing when I thought I was doing stand up as I was trying to tell stories with jokes in them. I wasn't necessarily just trying to tell jokes. Um, so I was very comfortable with that format. But I think doing that really made me think about, you know, how do you tell a story in seven minutes? How do you craft this? you know, how do, how do you give this a beginning, middle and end? How do you, how are you engaging as a performer? And I think that really helped me when I went into pitch rooms to pitch my show. I think that experience, I felt like, okay, like I know how to tell a story and that's what this is. This isn't just a list of like pros and cons about my show. I need to take the audience, this, these TV executives on a, on a journey. Um, and so I, I think the, the art of the story I think it has really helped me as as a writer, both both the the craft of, of crafting a story, but then also the the performance of a story. Okay, so um, you know, not to get too tedious, but I think this is actually useful information. You know, is when you're getting ready to pitch somebody, mm -hmm. how much preparation and rehearsal goes into it. I think some people a, a some, lot. Okay, because like <laughs> some, I think I think some people going in or looking at it from the outside might think. Well, I know my story, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in there and I'm going to pitch it. I'm going to tell people what I'm up to. But yeah. there's maybe more craft involved in doing it successfully than some people might imagine. Yeah. Well, first of all, everything changes when you get in front of an audience. Like you might be so comfortable with it, and then suddenly you're telling it to people, and you get tongue-tied and nervous, and everything goes out the window. So I, I think what you 
but the 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 art of it is it has to feel casual and comfortable, right? It it can't feel rehearsed or wrote or a performance. You know, it it has to feel like, hey guys, I'm just telling you the story I'm really excited about. And the secret is that itself is a performance, right? I think people people understand that on some level and they think, oh, I shouldn't over rehearse because I, I want it to feel somewhat off the cuff and casual. But but the truth is in order to feel that off the cuff and casual, you need to be so comfortable with it and like just have it down cold so that you're acting a little bit and that you're, you're, you can be a little loose with it. And in the moment you can like find something else that you want to say and that won't completely throw you off because you know exactly how to, you know, find the stream again. Or if someone has a question that's not going to throw you because because you're so comfortable with your own material, you know it back and forth, you can like answer that question and then quickly find a way to segue back. Um, and it sometimes feels tedious to rehearse this thing that you know backwards and forwards. And you know, it's embarrassing to do it in your room by yourself. <laughs> you're like, why, this is feels this feels phony. Uh, but the truth is the more you actually do that rehearsal and treat it like this performance you're gonna do, the more comfortable you will be in the room, the more confident you will seem, and the more people will think, oh, this this person knows what they're doing. We should give this person a job. Okay, and so that and that happened for you. You got through the hoops and you pitched this thing to to what? Michael Eisner? Is that who it was or his company? Yeah. So so with Bojack, it was it was first um, Tornante, which is Michael Eisner's company. Well, so first I, I pitched it to uh, Steve Cohen and then Noel Bright, who ended up being executive producers on the show along with me. Um, and then we took it to their boss, Michael Eisner, and I talked to Michael about it a little bit. And then I developed it for a few years with Tornante, and then we pitched it to Netflix, and it was the same thing. I mean, it, it was. Um, you know, I, I feel phenomenally uh, lucky and that is a theme I keep coming back to that. I think so much of everything in life is just being in the right place at the right time and, and hitting the right moment in the right way. Um, so I, I think Netflix at that time was, was looking to expand and looking for different kinds of stories to tell. And I think they, you know, I say this as a compliment. I think they didn't quite know what they were doing in the moment. You know, I, th I think they were they wanted to be surprised and they wanted to, you know, they didn't have this like harsh algorithm for like we need this kind of shows to hit this kind of audience precisely. I mean, they had some ideas of like, oh, we have, you know, um, adult cartoons on our service and that's doing well for us. So maybe if we had some more, that would do great, too. But I think more so they were really interested and I think honestly, most network executives are interested in this. And I think some of them are, are maybe more or less hamstrung by the places that they work. But I think they, they, they want to meet people who are excited about the stories they have to tell. They want to meet people, you know, they're not set necessarily looking for like, we need, we need to check this box. They want people to come in and wow them. And so I, I think when I came in with Bojack, it's a weird show. And I, I think more than just selling the show, I think really what I was selling was here's a guy who's ready to have a show. Here's a guy who's exciting to give a show to. Here's somebody who can who can run a show and give us something interesting. And oh yeah, it happens to be about a talking horse who's a washed up actor in Hollywood. But <laughs> I, I think really what I was selling was myself. Yeah. And my own competence and my own confidence. And and that's really I think what what network executives, but I also think publishers, I think everyone is really looking for is like they want to feel like you're an artist who is ex exciting and, and knows what they're doing and that they can kind of like leave you alone and let you make your show. Well, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think like at first blush, if you were to kind of remove 
anybody's knowledge of BoJack Horseman from their brain, and then you were to come in cold and just give them the quick pitch of what it is, I don't think most people would say, well, that's a slam dunk. You know, like, yeah, I don't know if there is a quick pitch. <laughs> I, I feel like six, six seasons later, you know, the show's done. And I feel like the best pitch for the show is the show. I feel like I couldn't give it in a half hour. It took me six years to tell the whole story. And that's, that's, that's the wholeness of what the show is, which is maybe a big ask for someone to invest in if they, if they are not sure they want to watch it or not. But and, and had you had other shows and other pitches that you had gone out with and been unsuccessful with prior to this? This this wasn't your yeah. first. Well, it was my first show that I sold and made. But I, yeah, I had I definitely had other stuff that I developed that that didn't that wasn't that successful. Um, and, and I think the, those experiences really helped prepare me for for this moment and, and kind of you know. But again, a lot of it was timing, you know. Um, one of the shows that I was really excited about was a, a uh, political satire. Um, and, and when I went out with it, it was right when uh, HBO was, was launching Veep. And it felt like HBO didn't want to do another political show. And I think other networks didn't want to feel like they were copying HBO. And so it wasn't a good time for me to go out with that specific show. Um but again, I mean, the, the experience of writing that and working on that and the meetings I got after that really helped me and helped prepare me for, for when, it was, when I was in the right place at the right time. Well, I think, though, like, I think that the, the point that you just made about having there be crossover between what's already in the culture and what you might uh, be trying to offer, uh, you know, that, that's going to often be the case. And I think when you're in a room with a television executive making a pitch, there is... Uh, most of the time, a very strong likelihood that they have, if they've been around, you know, any number of years, heard a similar pitch. That's why I say I think what your strongest selling point is yourself and and what you bring that's special. Because yeah, any any one sentence description of something is you can go, oh yeah, that's like this and that's like that, and we've seen it before. But what makes shows, and I would argue also books and stories and movies and musicals and plays and uh, tweets interesting is, is, is not the premise. It's the execution. I mean, it's all in what you bring to it and how you do it. And so I think what, what you need when you are trying to sell your thing, you're selling like, this is my experience. This is why I am the person to write this. And this is why it's going to be different than everything else. Even if the log line might sound familiar. Well, I, I mean, I think the, the great advantage of BoJack is that the logline does not sound familiar. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, I think that you're dealing with a, uh, with a premise that most people have not been hit with before, I would imagine, unless there were other animated talking horse shows before yours that had been, um, you know, through the, through the process. Well, yeah, I mean, BoJack is definitely a, a a weird one, but you can, I mean, you can, you can trace the influence in it. I mean, you can say, look, it's a little bit like, uh, the Larry Sanders show or 30 rock or these kind of like inside Hollywood satires. It's a little bit like who framed Roger rabbit, which is also an inside Hollywood satire, but has this added element of like humans and tunes, you know, interacting like everything is normal. It's like that, but with animals, you know, it's a little bit like the Muppet show, uh, which is also a, 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 a backstage show business thing, but has this mix of humans and Muppets. Um, you know, so there are definitely a lot of, of influences you can point to. I mean, it's certainly a lot like other adult animated shows, um, like the Simpsons or, um, Archer, you know, like, um, especially adult animated shows that have these like crass male anti-heroes that are maybe alcoholics like Rick and Morty. Um, again, Archer, uh, Futurama, uh, there's a, a, um, a social commentary bent to it like South Park. 
Uh, it also has this kind of melancholy male anti-hero in the mode of like Mad Men or Californication. Um, so yeah, maybe you know when you when again when you look at just the one sentence, you might be like that's a little odd. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely exists in a continuum and in a history of television that in some ways feels very familiar. And I think what's special about it is, A, the, the way I combine the different things or we combine the different things and, and kind of made it its own thing. Um, and also, yeah, the, the specificity of what I brought to it and my attitude about it. And, and, and I say I, but I mean we because it was very collaborative and a lot of people worked on it. Well, and it's like the psychological realism, I feel like of your work, you know, c combining it with the surreal, like visual aesthetic, um, like that is what to me feels like the new twist on, um, on BoJack and, uh, like in relation to other animated shows. I mean, some of them have been pointing in this direction, but it feels like you kind of took it to the next level. I like to think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think when you are coming up with any any story and and again I'm you know mostly talking about TV but I think this is applicable to other forms as well I think one of the you know the 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 balancing act you need to do from a sales perspective is how is this familiar so people kind of have something to grab onto they understand you know what what they have a context and also how is this not like anything that's ever existed before like it it needs to feel both familiar and surprising and I think Sometimes, I think a lot of times, people veer too far in one direction or the other. And that's both in making the thing itself, but also in the selling of the show. And when you are, and I'm talking about selling it to network executives, but also then selling it to an audience. You know, how, what are the commercials going to look like? How are people going to understand what this show is before they make the decision whether to watch it or not? And I know just for myself as a consumer, if something feels too familiar, then I'm not interested in watching and I go, okay, I've seen that a million times, but also if something feels so out there that I don't have a context for it. I might appreciate and go, Oh, that's new and different, but I'd rather watch this other thing that is more kind of like the things that I like. Right. And, and so I, I think you need to be on some level thoughtful of that balancing act. And I think there are times when I felt like I veered too far into the familiar and there are times when I feel like I veered too far the other way and gone a little too weird, um, and I think you, you're really aiming for that sweet pot spot that feels like you are pushing the edges of the genre or the format of what this could be and what the expectations are, but doing it gently enough that it doesn't scare off fans of that genre or format. You want to invite those people in and then be like, but look what else we can do. Yeah. And you know, you talked earlier about execution and I mean, it, it translates, you know, whether it's a TV show or it's a story collection or a novel or whatever it is that ultimately comes down to that and i think though when it comes to a tv show um it, it sometimes takes it all it almost always seems to take time for a show to find its legs and to find the kind of equilibrium that you're talking about and a lot of times shows don't get that opportunity i feel like a lot of shows the plug gets pulled before they do um yeah. I, I think for example just of like you know to give like a really uh, prominent example of seinfeld uh, mm -hmm. And how it didn't really like that show didn't really take off uh, right away. It did okay. I think critics liked it, uh, uh, you know, decently, and it wasn't bad. But it didn't really find itself until later in its life. And I, I guess I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about um, the the process of getting through season one and when you feel like maybe you hit your stride. Uh, you know, did it happen in that first season? Did it happen in a subsequent season? 
I think it did. I mean, I think the show is always improving. So, I mean, I felt like at the end of season one, we made a season that I was really proud of and, and, and did what I wanted it to do. I think part of, yes, I think there's a learning curve always. And I look back at some of those early season one episodes and I go, this could have been better. We made some mistakes there. We just, you know, we didn't know yet. But also, you know, the, the design of the show was we wanted to trick people a little bit. We wanted people to think it was more familiar than it was. We wanted people to think it was more of a typical adult animated show. And over the course of the first season, this is one of the reasons I was really excited to be working with Netflix where they did release all the episodes at once and people could watch the whole season in order. You would kind of gradually get sucked into this much deeper, more introspective melancholy world. And we wanted people to be surprised by that. I think the, the danger in that kind of design is you're going to lose people who don't wait for the surprise. You know, people who watch the first couple episodes go, okay, I get what this is doing. It's not for me. And they, they tune out. And I, I wish I'd anticipated that better or maybe laid a few more clues because there are some, but they're, they're not as many as I think there should have been of, of, of what the show ultimately was trying to do and what it ended up being. You know, I'm, I'm actually really grateful again this this theme of, of gratitude and, and luck that netflix did give us a lot of room and and space to to create multiple seasons and give us time to grow because i think our audience grew every season you know more people continued to discover it the more people were talking about the show um you know i i would bet there are more people watching season one of bojack now than there ever were when season one first came out um so i but i, I think one of the hard things about the business now and i think seinfeld is a great example because we don't watch tv the same way as when we watched seinfeld right like if i'm somebody in the 90s and i hear this show seinfeld is really good i'm gonna just tune in on nbc that thursday night at nine and i'm gonna see an amazing episode of seinfeld right i'm not gonna go back to the early seasons and start at the beginning and watch the episodes where you know they didn't quite find their footing yet um, but that's not true of Bojack. And, you know, by design, Bojack is a show that's meant to be viewed in order. It's meant to be cumulative. It's it's heavily serialized. So if people hear Bojack Horseman is good, they're going to go back and watch that first episode. And so there's a lot more pressure, I think, now more than ever that you have to be good coming out of the gate. You, you know, and, and I think in some ways early on, I, I was kind of fooled that I felt like we didn't have that kind of pressure because of the model of the whole season coming out at once, that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as necessary that the first episode be amazing because the whole season was right there. But I think long term, it's it's been more of a challenge as more and more people come to the show. They're always going to start at that first episode. So it's it's really I think now more than ever, there is a lot of pressure on the, that pilot episode if you're making a new show. You're not going to get that time to grow and find the show because even if you do, the new audience that comes in, they're still going to, you know, be there right at the beginning. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, you know, I'm thinking as I listen to you talk, you know, you've obviously got storytelling in your DNA, uh, whether it's the fiction or it's the television or it's even the the uh, you know the monologues that you did as a performer. But when you're doing an animated series, you also have to have a handle on. Um, well, whenever you're doing television, you have to have a handle on the visual aspect of it. But I think in particular with animation, you know, getting the look of the show right and having a sense of what kind of aesthetic you want to create. Um, is that something that you had been toying with in your life? I know that you collaborate on the 
you obviously collaborate with a visual artist. Is it Lisa Hanawalt? Is that? Yeah. So there's there's two people that are really uh, important when you're you're thinking about the the visual side of, of BoJack Horseman, and, and they both have full teams. So I, I don't want to imply that it's just the two of them. But Lisa Hanawalt uh, is a, a, an old friend of mine who. Um, was the designer on the show and she created the look of the characters, the backgrounds, the world, everything kind of follows her lead in that regard. And then Mike Hollingsworth is someone I'd never met until I started working on the show and he was the supervising director. And so he, he, unlike both me and Lisa had a lot of experience in animation. And so he, he was, he's in charge of kind of the, yeah, the movement and how the characters interact and, and how the flow of the show goes. And, um, you know, collaborating with them has taught me so much about how to think about stories visually, which is not something that I was particularly well versed in before I started. You know, again, I, I majored in playwriting. I really thought of storytelling as far as what is the dialogue here. Um, and so one of the things I'm I'm proud of with the show is the ways in which as it's developed, I've gotten more comfortable writing scenes without dialogue or, or finding ways to turn the story visually that, that don't rely on just people saying their feelings. Um, and, I, and so I, I think the show has been really helpful in that way. And I think that's something that, that I, I've taken to my prose writing. I think if you, if you read my book, you can see some of that too, that definitely it starts from a place of dialogue. There's a lot of fun conversations that happen in the book, but also I'm more comfortable describing things either internally or also externally of kind of like what what is happening in 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 the world that isn't just people talking to each other yeah let's let's talk about the difference between writing for the screen and writing uh prose you know for your story collection did you find do you have a preference i guess first of all is there one that you find comes more easily or is more invigorating or fun than the other no i don't i mean i i i really enjoy both. I mean, one thing that I've discovered I really liked about writing the book is that it's in some ways more immediate in that you don't need to collaborate with anyone. I mean, it took a long time to write this book and then for it to come out and, you know, my editor was very helpful and there was a lot of back and forth and work on it. But there's something really amazing about, you know, spending a morning or an afternoon writing a thing. And then when you're done writing it, the thing is done. It's like, that's it. I, I, you know, look, I made a hat where there never was a hat. Like, that's it. <laughs> Whereas in TV, like you write a thing and then you have to, uh, you know, get funding from someone to like make it. You need to hire actors. You need to hire a crew. You need to hire other collaborators, editors, directors, animators. Like it's, it's a whole process to make the thing. And I love that process because it comes out the other end, you know, so much better than what you could have just made by yourself. And it's, you know, it's such a joy to have these other people working on the show who bring their own ideas to it and, 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 you know, build onto this tower you're building. Um, and that, that is, it's, that is also very rewarding. So I, I, I guess the answer is I like both. I, I, I enjoy the immediacy of being like, look, I just made a thing where, where there, there never was a thing. Um, but I also like the, the joy of collaboration and kind of being over, you know, to look back over a year and have a thing and be like, wow, we, we did this. And it all started with a little spark and, and then all the, I never thought it would get here. And like, look, here it is. Now I have, you know, six seasons of television. That's amazing. Yeah. How did I do it? I, I don't know. But I mean, <laughs> the tr it's, that's true of the book also. I'm like, how did I write a book? I have no idea how it happened. Wow. And what about, uh, have you thought about translating any of your short stories into screen projects? Uh, yes. 
I, it's, I mean, it's too early to announce anything because not, nothing, you know, there are no official deals or anything, but there have been conversations around those. And, and uh, yeah, so, some of the stories I hope uh, can be adapted in some way because I think there is some fun to the adaption process and it's not something I've, the adaptation process, it's not something I've done a lot. Um, but it was also really important to me when I was writing this book that I was writing it to be a book. You know, I didn't want to feel like I was creating IP or that these were like rough drafts for movies or TV shows I would later write or that somebody else would adapt. You know, I I, I, just, I, I really enjoy the fact that now this book exists and these stories exist and these stories are done. And so I think for me to get excited about any adaptation, it has to feel transformative in some way. I, I'm really not interested in working on something that just feels like a, a, a one-to-one translation of the story I already wrote. Cause I feel like I already did that and it works well as the story. So I, I'm, I'm interested in, in some of the conversations I've been having is how, how do we add a new level to this by making it a movie or a TV show or something else? How, how do we change the story or, or bring in a collaborator that has a new point of view on this? And so I, I think, I mean, it's still early, but I, I think any adaptations that I, I myself do or approve for other people to do are going to have to be in some ways different from the stories themselves. And what about uh, like the working in animation versus working with, uh, you know, living human being actor people? Like, do you... uh, Well, I, we do work with living human beings in animation, too, but I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely a different art. And, and most of my experience in television now has been in animation. Uh, which is a little surprising because I don't come from animation. I mean, prior to BoJack, I had zero animation experience. Um, and, and now I have three animated shows that I, I work on. Um, and, and so I, I feel like I, I live more in that world. Um, but I, I would love to do more live action stuff. I, I'm excited to do more live action. I, I think one of the – there are many exciting things about animation to me right now. And one is that I feel – like the the edges are are still being pushed in really interesting ways and i feel like you know the simpsons is a show that i love and was obviously a huge influence on me but i think it it casts such a long shadow and it defined for so long what adult animated shows were you know and i think south park as well to an extent um you know that they're you know i think it's an old cliche of like cartoons they're not just for kids anymore but I, I feel like we need to have a conversation of like cartoons. They're not just for like college aged boys anymore. You know, <laughs> like like you can make an adult cartoon that is not sophomoric, that doesn't rely on, you know, uh, a bunch of sex jokes or crude humor or alcoholics. And that's, again, one of the ways in which I think BoJack was both familiar and that it, it did um, – play up a lot of those similar tropes is what you'd think of as being in a typical adult animated sitcom. But I think it also stepped outside that a little bit and, and, and pushed the, the, the format in, in new ways or, or what we think of can be a, a, a mainstream animated show. And so, and then I think Tuca and Birdie and Undone, the other two shows I work on push those even farther. Um, and so I, I think there's still so much room in animation to, play to different audiences. You know, there's so many people who say things like, oh, I don't, I don't like animated shows. And every time I hear that, I think, well, that makes sense because there's never been an animated show for you. But that doesn't mean there can't be. That just means there hasn't been, right? It's not that you don't like animated shows. You've just seen en- enough animated shows to know that, that 
the audience and the kind of humor that, that those shows are going for is, is not your demographic. But I think there are opportunities to, to widen the scope of that and maybe invite new people in. So that's really exciting for me. Um, but I also am excited to, to see what I can do in the world of live action. And are, are there, are there edges to the boundaries of that that I can push as well? Are, are there things that we are not used to seeing in live action shows that would be interesting and or fun to play around with? What year did BoJack launch? Uh, 2014. Okay. Cause like I'm thinking about timing, you know, and I'm thinking about this mm-hmm. notion of, of like the, the brilliant way that the, you know, the show uses animation and mixes it with like more sophisticated adult themes and ennui and psychological realism like we talked about earlier and how maybe you know in terms of hitting the culture at the right moment with this kind of material uh it feels like it feels like with the benefit of hindsight it feels like oh yeah you know like some of this stuff is hard to deal with i think reality in general is hard for people to deal with like increasingly now that we're in covid and we're Mm -hmm. you know we're seeing uh you know, just all the chaos going on uh, in terms of um, systemic racism, a crazy president, blah, blah, blah. You know, like everybody, I think, is kind of stressed. And maybe there's something to this idea of engaging with suf- human suffering in the context uh-huh. of, of an animated show about a, a, a horse. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, well, I think, it, I, th- I think it. you drop your defenses a little bit when you watch a cartoon and you're able to engage things on maybe a, a more primordial or, or subliminal level than when you're watching live actors or because there's a suspension of, of disbelief that is inherent in just watching you know, a talking horse. You, you drop your defenses and you're willing to buy things that, or, or you know, like, like, for example, long monologues about feelings that if you're watching a live action show, you'd be like, come on, I don't buy this. Like, no one, no one talks for that long or is that aware of, of their own emotions. But in the world of our cartoon, as, you know, uh, meta and winky and exaggerated as it is, that, that stuff is easier to swallow. Yeah, you know, and I, it's funny because uh, I've noticed in my own personal reading habits during the pandemic how, like, if I'm just... If I'm like in bed at night and I have like a few minutes and I'm going to read something, if I'm reaching for something for a long time, I was reaching for like an essay collection or, a, you know, some sort of nonfiction book, just a phase that I was in. Mm-hmm. But during the pandemic, I have come back around to reading some fiction, which I guess makes some psychological sense. I'm like, okay, reality is exhausting. <laughs> like just put me into somebody else's fic. I'm ready. Like take me away, you know? And it's been, it's been lovely to yeah. kind of experience that. And so I'm trying to think of like a parallel experience, you know, a parallel. Um, well, I think reading a reading a book in some ways feels like listening to a podcast in that it's like very internal and very it's like emotion. Like it also you drop your defenses in a way. Um, it feels like it's you and it feels more personal than watching a play or a movie or a TV show where there's like a bit more remove. Um you know, a lot of stories, not a lot, um, a handful of stories in my book uh, use the second person. You know, you go to this, you are doing that. And uh, I think that's more intimate in a way. And I, I think to read in a book, you know, you go to this place and you're feeling that, you know, part of you knows this is fiction. It's not me. It's a character. But on some subliminal level, you, it, you're also thinking, yes, I am doing that. I am feeling these things. Um and so certainly a lot of my book was was influenced by the writing I did on the show and the same kind of mix of like, how do I 
let an audience, or in this case, a reader, drop their defenses to get to these more emotional places. So I think I use humor in a very similar way, or I'll, I'll start things very lightly or very caustically, and then kind of gradually kind of reveal the real pain underneath or the real emotion underneath. And that's it's been a um, a combination that's really worked for me, I think, both in the show and, and, and in this book. What about literary influences? Like, do you have some favorite writers that you were leaning on when you were working on your collection or who have had a big influence on the work that you've done in television? Um, those I feel like those are two separate questions, although maybe they shouldn't be because I think, you know, writers that have influenced me all over. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking at a book right now. It just happens to be on my desk, which is uh, David Rakoff's Love, Dishonored, uh, Mary Die, Cherish, Perish, uh, which is a, a book that I love, which is... Um, it's very emotional, but also very funny uh, story that's told in verse, right? It's all one long poem. And I actually have a poem uh, in my collection that 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 uh, was very much influenced by uh, th- this work. But I, I think there's something I like how cute it is, but it's also very deep and moving and 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 troubling, you know, and, and I, I I think um, structure can be really helpful in that way. I really like you know, coming in with like, I want to do a story that's a poem, or I want to do an episode of television that's all one monologue. And the challenge of like, how do you work within that structure? How do you justify that form um, is is really interesting. Another book I love is uh, Sarah Mangusso's 300 Arguments, which is just these very, I don't even know what you call them, short story, like sentence long fragments, um, but that feel isolated and of their own. And, you know, the way, way she herself describes it is it's like almost like if you just took, you know, took all the like the the great lines that you would highlight in a book, but it was just those lines, like the rest of the, the context was stripped of it. And you just had these like sentence long or two sentence gems. Um, but gradually, as you read it, they start to accumulate and you start to pick out certain themes or certain stories. Um, that was also her work is also a big influence. I have another story in here called short stories that is just 10 you know, sentence long stories. Um, so, so I, I think any writer that, that plays with form in an interesting way is, is someone that I'm very interested in and, and someone that's influenced me probably. Yeah, no, I've talked to Sarah on this show more than once. Mm-hmm. Like, her, like she's oh, the, she's the master of compression. Like, I don't know if anybody Amazing. compress compresses better than she does. Um, and I think, you know, what you're talking about too, is sort of co- like giving yourself creative constraints. I think sometimes people, can think to themselves like, wow, if I want to, um, create something great, that is the truest and fullest expression of whatever it is that lives inside of me, I need maximal freedom to oh, go wherever what, I want to go. What, and, a pri- what a prison that is. Let me <laughs> tell you something. So we had, um, like I said, we, we, uh, my comedy group, uh, right out of college, we made this deal with this website, super deluxe. And they paid us, basically they didn't pay us a salary. They, they paid us, um, we, our deal was you give us money and we will make videos for you. So they just gave us like lumps of cash and then we could decide how much of that money, you know, we were going to budget towards the crew or the actors or the equipment and how much money was going to go right into our pockets. Just lumps of cash. 
which was a crazy deal for them to offer and crazy for us to take. We probably would have much better off if we had a little more discipline about how the money was going or worked with someone who, who knew how to do that. But I think their perspective was like, look, these guys make funny videos. We're not going to tell them how to do that. Take our money and make us some funny videos. Um, then the, the company went under, or I guess the company didn't go under because it was Turner, but the, the website went under. Uh, so they canceled everything. And I said, you know, we're, we're, we're done here. Um, but we still had a contract for 36 more videos. And our, our, our manager was very canny and said, you, you guys have a pay or play contract. They have to pay you for the rest of these videos. So we got this huge lump sum of what would be the budget for 36 more short sketches. And that was just no strings attached money for us. And like I said earlier, like we are very lucky and that gave us a lot of luxury to kind of like, you know, spend some time thinking about what we wanted to do. And that was like, in some ways, the worst thing that happened to our group. That was the end of our group, basically, is we had this a lot of money. And it was like, okay, we're not working for anybody else now. It's just the five of us. We can do whatever we want. What do we want to do? And we spent a year arguing. We spent a year pitching each other stuff and shooting each other down and feeling, no, but is this the thing? Is this the thing we want to be spending our money on? And meanwhile, we were, you know, spending that money. We, we would collect a paycheck every week and we would, you know, use it for rent and food. And, you know, we basically just frittered away all that money. Um, and it was, you know, good time for me to continue to develop as an artist. And I think I, I uh, benefited from having that time, but we didn't create anything. Um, it was, it was very unproductive. And so I'm all for constraints. And a lot of, I think my best writing comes from either, uh, actual constraints or artificial constraints, you know, challenges that I give myself. Um, a lot of stories in this book started as like, oh, this would be a fun way to tell a story. And the challenge is what, what is the content of a story or what is a story that justifies this format that I have put onto myself? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, that function, um, dictates form. Um, but actually, no, I would say function matches form, but I don't, I don't think necessarily think it's true that function comes first. I think sometimes you come up with the form first and then you have to come up with a function that dictates that you have to come up with the story that justifies that. And then I think if you're just thinking, okay, blue sky, what's the story I want to tell? And then I'll come up with like how I want to tell that story. That's really challenging. Sometimes you can come up with the how first and then figure out the story you're going to do. Is this something you always wanted to do? Like from the time you were a kid, I get, you said you grew up in Palo Alto. So you're not like from a show business family or anything like that. Like, no. were you always uh, writerly? Were you always somebody who wanted to perform or be funny or whatever it is? Yeah. I mean, I was a bit of a class clown. Um, I would say I was definitely creative, I don't know if I necessarily knew writing was the way I was going to express my creativity or if I knew that that was like an actual career that I could have. But I also didn't know of any other careers I could do. I never really thought I was good at anything except I seemed to be kind of good at writing. So I, I kept doing that and eventually I got good enough that people started paying me for it. But that wasn't necessarily my aspiration. I mean, I remember when I got to college, I was trying to decide – if I wanted to be a, a playwriting major or an acting major, I knew I wanted to do something in theater. Um, and I remember at the time when I was a freshman, if you were a, an acting major for your senior project, you had to act in a play and write a 30 page paper about it. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to write a paper. And if you were a playwright, you just had to write a play. I thought, Oh, that's much easier. <laughs> I'll just do that. 
<laughs> uh, and of course, by the time I became a senior, the rules changed, and I had to write a paper and I'd write a play and a paper. So I was like, oh, I should have just been an actor. That would have been so much easier. Um, but that, you know, it was me trying to get out of doing work that led to my now entire career and led to a lot more work for myself. The path of least resistance. Yeah. What about uh, performing? Like, have you, have you got a, like an interest in continuing in that vein, or do you think that you're you're better suited to the writer creator role? I like performing. Um, I don't like the hustle around it. You know, I, I think, you know, as I was saying earlier about like being a writer, part of it is you have to be a performer and there are these kind of things related to being a writer that are kind of a, a, annoying for some writers and that stuff doesn't bother me as much, but the stuff around being a performer that is not being a performer, I hate that stuff. Like I, I, there was a while where I was, you know, in New York thinking maybe I'll be a writer or being an actor and the idea of going on auditions, headshots, resumes, like all that stuff was felt so gross to me and I couldn't do it. I, I didn't have the stamina for it. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, it's a lot of rejection in a way that feels very personal and very stupid. Like I remember going in for auditions for commercials for, you know, it wasn't like, you know, this wasn't my dream to act in commercials. It's just like, okay, this, this could be a gig that can maybe help me. And the copy was so dumb. It was just like, what this vacuum cleaner can do that or you know just some line like how do i put a spin on that and i would go into a waiting room and i'd see a room full of people that were just my type but handsomer and i was like well i can make this decision for you go with the handsomer guy like i'm, I'm not gonna pull out a read of this that's gonna be more compelling than any of these guys like this is a waste of everybody's time um and so i've enjoyed performing on my own shows and and when i when my friends ask me to do their stuff that's like a joy to me and i i think i have a a, a bit of a talent for it but you know i'm not going to be nominated for any oscars anytime soon and i i don't think that's ever going to be my my main gig and i'm i'm happy for that not to be my main gig so what about like future projects i mean i don't mean to i mean you've got so much you've done so much in in the yeah, past come few on. years i can't <laughs> just rest on some of these morals for a little bit i was gonna say maybe you should rest and rejuvenate but i have a feeling you're not i have a feeling you've got stuff like going like I, i'm curious to know um like what's going on uh you know on with television and then what's going on with literature not much to announce i mean i i am um I'm I Bojack is done, but my other two shows, uh, Tuca and Birdie, which was created by Lisa Hanawalt, and Undone, which I co-created with Kate Purdy, uh, those are coming back for second season. So I'm working on both those shows. Um, and then, you know, as I said earlier, a, a lot of these stories in these books, in this book, there's been conversations about adapting them or trying to take them to other places. There's nothing to announce yet, but uh, hopefully some of those conversations will lead to something. And then. I've been resting and I have been rejuvenating and restore, restoring, uh, <laughs> restorative. What's, what's the verb of rejuvenating or it's been, a it's been a restorative time. I have been restorativing. <laughs> I feel like new ideas are coming in and that's really exciting. And I haven't, I haven't really worked on any of them yet. I, I don't know if there, these new ideas are TV shows or stories for my next collection or movies or, or what they are. And I, I've been enjoying not putting them into boxes yet and just kind of letting them sift around in my brain and accumulate and kind of trying them out 
without like the pressure of like making them into things. And, and maybe someday I'll, I'll like get them down and, and figure that out. But I think, you know, again, coming off of those, the last few years, which I said were like really stressful, I did feel like I was out of gas and there were moments where I felt like, I don't know if I have any more ideas. And so right now I've just been enjoying like coming up with ideas and not necessarily making more work for myself out of them, but just enjoying the pleasure of like having ideas has been Yeah, nice. no, there's wisdom in that. I think, you know, I feel like sometimes you can get in a, into a trap where you think you just have to be on a constant state of production. You know, there can be outside pressure in, in, in addition to having like internal pressure or some voice in your head telling you that that's the case. But I think if you don't take time to refill your tank, you can burn yourself out, you know, uh, and it, it yeah. gets difficult to, or, or you can just, I mean, you might still be productive, you know, on the surface level, but you're going to be sort of joyless or fried internally. Yeah. And I think it's worth to take time and be thoughtful about like what kind of work do you want to be doing, and 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 how are, how is the way you see the world different now than when you started your last project, and and you know because I don't want to just do the same thing over and over again. I, I I'm very proud of BoJack, and I feel like I did that. I I wrote that show. You know, I don't want to do that again. I want to move on to other things. I mean, it's like what I was saying with my stories too and adapting them. I don't want to feel like I'm just writing those stories again. If I'm adapting them, I want to feel like I'm bringing something new to them. And so I think in order to bring new things, you need to take some time and yeah, refill the tank, read other things, watch other things and just go for walks and, and see what delights you. What kind of dog you got? I don't know. I mean, he's he's uh he came with my wife. Uh, he was included in the package, and he's a you know he's he's a, he's a rescue mutt. So he's 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 a poodle something. He's a little he's a very cute white dog, and he's he's very well behaved. Um, he's he's the best dog, is what I would say. But I guess everyone thinks their dog is the best dog. Yeah, I got a I got a mutt sitting here. She barked earlier. I don't know if you heard it, but she uh, she's my sidekick. She wants to be part of the conversation. I get it. We all we all want to be heard. Now, is there, um, before I let you go, I guess like a, a question would be as you're, you're sort of in this uh, transitional period or this weird kind of, uh, you know, what did you call it earlier? Like a societal pause that we all seem to be living yeah. in with COVID. Um, mm -hmm. You know, having had the success that you've had with BoJack and now you've got this book coming out from Knopf and, um, you know, you're not where you were when you were a Bard College graduate who had yeah. got, gotten this random Turner deal and were sort of trying to break into the business in a big way. Um, I guess on some level, it's easier to get to the next thing because people are anticipating you and know of you and are happy to have you in the room to hear your pitch. But uh, is there anything that makes it more difficult to have a precedent? You know, the precedent that you set as a person working in animated television um, do you feel any kind of like pressure from television executives or even, I don't know, from people in the business I, to I, want you to repeat? I hear what you're asking. And I, I, I feel like it's important to acknowledge in most ways. No, in most ways I'm, I'm in a very luxurious, lucky position. And I think the pressures that I feel are internal pressures, not external pressures. And I also think, you know, I'm very lucky in my own constitution. And then I think I, I was raised right. And I feel like I have my priorities in the right order. And I, I don't feel a pressure to be like, oh my God, what if the only thing I've ever known for is BoJack Horseman? And I never make anything good again. Like that doesn't keep me up at night. You know, I'm not worried about that. I feel like I'll make other good things 
or I won't. And then I'll figure something else out. You know, like, yeah, it's possible I will never have a thing that is as popular or well-loved as BoJack was. And that's okay. I made BoJack, you know, um, I might not write another book that is as good as this book is, but that's okay. I wrote this book and I'm proud of this book and I'll probably be proud of other things I make. And I will hopefully live a long life full of ups and downs and it'll be okay. And so I think, yes, on some level, I feel like there's this pressure, like, oh, I got to strike while the iron is hot. People want to take meetings with me now that might dry up in a couple of years. If I, you know, if I don't stake out what my next big thing is, I might not have the same opportunities in the future. But I feel like, you know, one of the luxuries of being a writer is you make your own work and that, you know, if, if I ever get to a point where people feel like they're sick of me or they feel like they're not interested in what I have to say, all I have to do is write another thing and I can do that by myself. And then if it's good enough, people will pay attention to me again. And if it's not good enough, then I need to try harder. So do you have a, a, another book in mind or in the works at all? Nope. I mean, I, I, yeah. I had such a great experience writing these stories. I would love to do another book of short stories, but that's, that's not going to be anytime soon. Again, I, I need to refill the tank. Got it. Got it. Well, I certainly appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you. Congratulations on the success of the TV shows um, and the publication of this collection. It's, uh, it's a lot to have accomplished in a short amount of time. So hats off to you for all the, all the good work. Thank you very much. It's, it's been fun talking to you. Uh, what a treat. Okay, guys, that is Raphael Bob Waxberg, creator of uh, BoJack Horseman, Emmy-nominated BoJack Horseman, and the author of the acclaimed story collection, Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory, available now from Knopf. You can find uh, Raphael on Twitter. His handle over there is, I believe, at RaphaelBW. Raphael Bob Waxberg, the new story collection one more time is called Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. It's out there now from Knopf. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 660 episodes and counting, are all available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the show support the show you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod you can also get other people gear did you know that t-shirts sweatshirts tank tops even do that at the uh, show's official website there's a link in the left sidebar at other if you have something to say if you have some feedback or if you want to tell me a story my email address for the show is letters at other letters at other don't forget, too, that the uh, Other People podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is free. Wherever you get your apps, go get the app. Next up on the program is a conversation with Lee Stein, author of the novel Self-Care, which has been making some noise. Happy to have Lee back on the program celebrating this publication success we had an interesting talk so get ready for that don't forget to register to vote go to vote.org I think that's what it is get signed up for a vote by mail if that's what you want to do absentee ballot take care of that now tell your friends get organized 
Rally the troops. Let's do this. Everybody's got to vote. Make your voice heard. Exercise your right. All right? Please? (laughs) 